Welcome to ALEC Across the States, the premier state policy podcast. I'm Bill Meyerling, your host. For this episode of Across the States, I'm sitting down with two ALEC policy experts, Chief Economist Jonathan Williams and Senior Director of the Center for State Fiscal Reform, Lee Shulk. Jonathan, Lee, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. First, a word about the times we're in. With the World Health Organization declaring COVID-19 as a global pandemic, financial markets have been particularly volatile. The S&P index is down roughly 24% this month. And while that's troubling for someone's 401k, it also has an impact on state budgets. But we aren't here today to talk pandemic. Uh, We're not here to speculate, pontificate, or criticize. Uh, ALEC has always been a solutions-first organization, and through our research, council, and policy recommendations, we've helped legislators guide their state governments through challenging times for almost 50 years. Now to our guests. Uh, Jonathan, this is a very live market. Uh, What can legislators and state governments expect? I think uh, the best that we can project is they're going to expect the unexpected for the next period of time, right? I think that's going to be the new normal for a while until markets kind of even out and we get some more certainty as to what the glide path is for the future. And so I think it's awfully important as we go through these uncertain times, you know, we've we've had historic downturns before, and uh, we can learn a lot of lessons from those uh, periods. And uh, one of those is, of course, uh, resisting the urge to overreact and uh, and also then to kind of just see what is the free market solution set, as you alluded to, that Alec is known for over our nearly 50-year history of things that we can provide state policymakers uh, during these trying times ahead. And Bill, I would just add, you know, obviously, Alec, our hearts, uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to all of those who are affected uh, by this pandemic. And uh, as we move forward, uh, I think a lot of what we're going to touch on today is uh, what states can do to be prepared for um, the instability, whether it's with uh, the financial markets, uh, but also with making sure that we have the funds available to deal with these situations. Obviously, uh, uh, human life is sacred, and we need to be prepared uh, to protect that. So, you know, you mentioned a little bit about economic volatility there. Certainly, we've been there before, uh, whether it's the dot-com bubble, the housing bubble, or the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers uh, back in 2008. So, you know, what lessons can we take from 2008? There's a whole lot of lessons. And, uh, you know, I was sitting in a chair similar to this in 2008 at ALEC as we kind of navigated that difficult period of time. Uh, we had, I think, a lot of lessons that we could take away. And, and some of those are certainly on the budget side uh, for states not overextending themselves during the good periods. And that's something we've been weaving into so many of our messages and our state lawmakers have been doing the right thing by putting more money away in rainy day funds and, and things like that. Uh, but one of the lessons of, of 2008 uh, was really, you know, looking at uh, how do we make the states competitive for future growth? Right now, for instance, the American economy, even though we're having a difficult time in equities at the moment, we're especially well positioned to rebound from this relative to countries around uh, the world because of tax relief and regulatory relief and so many of the things that we've seen come out of the Trump administration and so many of the ALEC members, what they've accomplished in their states. Uh, so I think that is one of the keys is we're going to exit this poly- period of volatility in this downturn, how can states best position themselves to be the growth states of the future uh, based on some things they can be doing right now? And I would just add that, you know, some states have done a good job positioning themselves for this. uh, But the backdrop is also that uh, spending at all levels of government, um, especially in the states, has really ballooned uh, year after year. And so we need to start looking at 
best practices, what states uh, have done to better prioritize their spending and their budgets, uh, and that will help better prepare them in the future. And one thing that's, that we did learn from 2008 as it comes down to the ALEC principle of federalism, which is we had the bailout of the states coming out of uh, the recession of 2008, the Obama-era dollars that went out to the states with many strings attached to them. States are still suffering some of those consequences and the inflexibility of federal dollars. And that's one of the huge lessons that we learned is do not overly rely on federal support. States are very well positioned and communities and civic institutions and families are the best, of course to solve many of these challenges up ahead. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons is do not allow uh, the quote-unquote free federal money to come in and solve the issues that states are so much better positioned to solve. That's right. So, you know, individual liberty and, and federalism where states are first among equals. Uh, so you're talking about some tangible policy prescriptions. So from a policy perspective, what should state legislators be thinking about right now? Well, there are a couple of things that uh, we often like to point to in terms of protecting taxpayers. One of them is TABOR in Colorado, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. Uh, TABOR was passed in 1992 as a constitutional amendment. And since then, it's really helped to, uh, one, keep income taxes flat in Colorado. You know, Colorado is not exactly a, a bastion of conservatism these days. However, uh, taxpayers there have been protected over the years. Uh, and so... Any time that uh, the state legislature wants to increase spending past uh, population growth or inflation, or any time they want to implement uh, a tax increase, it has to go before voters. Not only that, but if uh, revenue collections exceed estimates, uh, that money has to be returned to voters. That's one thing that we like to point to as just a really good model for states uh, that can help position them. I think another is uh, priority-based budgeting. And when you look at it from a tax revenue perspective, one of the things that we often talk about in rich states, poor states, is avoid the most damaging forms of taxation at the state level, which happen to also be the most volatile forms of taxation. So even former liberal Democrat Governor Jerry Brown of California admitted towards the end of his term, California relies so heavily on progressive forms of income taxes, taxes on capital, that not only they rank poorly in our metrics in rich states, poor states, but they're some of the most volatile forms. Uh, forms of revenue that California is going to suffer, let's say, more than many states, states that avoid income taxes, states that have flat taxes, as Lee talked about. And so it's, it's key on the spending side of the equation to not overextend ourselves. But on the other hand, relying on sources of revenue that are the least volatile is really important at this point. Gotcha. So, you know, beyond the Taxpayer Bill of Rights and some of the others that you've mentioned, uh, what policies are already in place in, in some of the states that will help those states better weather this storm? Well, one of them is state rainy day funds. This is something that in our ALEC budget reform toolkit that we actually created coming out of the last recession in 2009, uh, that state rainy day funds are key and that states should have a, a nest egg, just as we would advise individuals and families to have a nest egg during tough times. So many states uh, did not follow that practice. I think we learned a lot of lessons on that issue coming out of 2008. And we've seen some positive times in the last several years because of the strong national economy. 
states have seen record levels of tax revenue, and many states have used that to add to their rainy day funds. And it's not just the states that are always in the news, like Texas with billions of dollars in their rainy day fund, or North Dakota, or some of the energy-heavy states. It's other states like Nebraska and others, and you know Utah, who is ranked number one in rich states, poor states, for the all 12 editions of the publication. They've actually put together a commission led by our ALEC legislators and by private sector members coming together to say, if and when we have a downturn, and a downturn in federal support to the state of Utah, what are the things that we can do to protect Utah taxpayers from the downturn? So states have done some very innovative things in this space. Jonathan, what about the fact that some states, their rainy day funds, they're just not really, they're not big enough. They're, I mean, we've talked about, you know, on a number of occasions, how rainy day funds, they may only last for a couple of days. Um, I mean, that's, that's my big concern right now is some states have really been innovative, but others have not. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the things that's important for states to uh, look at best practices and see who has best prepared uh, for these situations. Well, you're right. There was a, a several cases where I think it was Pennsylvania who I think just recently added to their rainy day fund to help make the situation better. But I think they could operate state government essentially for a number of hours on the number of the, of the amount of their rainy day fund up until recently. But other states, you're right, it's less than a week that they could operate state government on uh, the rainy day fund balance. And so there's some real holes there of states that have not followed the prudent course of let's say Tabor in Colorado and some of the other things that you mentioned. The other thing I think to keep an eye on on the budget side is now that many states are adjourning for 2020 uh, and New Mexico's done, Virginia's uh, pretty much done, uh, what about the assumptions that are built into their current state budgets that have been already passed for the year? If they're assuming a 4 or 5% revenue growth budget, how many states are going to have to come in and revisit that to actually add more fiscal responsibility in the midterm uh, this year? That's going to be, I think, a big open question for the states. Do you think you'll see a lot of states coming back into session? It's very possible. And I don't think that anybody wants to do that during an election year to come back and pass a budget where they either have to cut spending or they have to raise revenue. Obviously, we hope they are financially responsible and do the thing on the spending side of the equation to properly prioritize spending instead of raise taxes. But I do think it's a real possibility that states may have to come back. You know, thinking about priorities and switching gears for just a second, um, you know, people don't really want to look at their 401ks right now. Uh, but states have to look at their pension funds. So what should states be expecting and, and what should state legislators be doing as it relates to public employee pensions? Uh, boy, yeah, absolutely. We should not look at your 401k right now because it's a long-term investment and this too shall pass and uh, we're going to do fine over a long period of time. But your point is exactly correct in that states don't have that luxury and that they have quarterly uh, responses that they'll get the numbers from their investment officers and things are going to look pretty dire, just like ours would look if we looked at it in 401ks. So I think, you know, the answer, of course, hindsight being 2020 is states long ago should have gotten out of the pension business and gone to the the 401k model that has worked so well for private sector employers and employees alike that gives young workers the flexibility to take their assets with them from job to job as millennials will probably have 10 to 20 jobs over the course of their career versus their parents or grandparents generation. And so I think part of the best solution has been the states that have already transitioned, like my home state of Michigan, uh, like Utah that we've talked about a lot already. Uh, so many states, Oklahoma uh, and others across the board that have already made that switch. Now, what do you do if you hadn't 
made the switch. Uh, that's going to be another bigger question is how do you handle this all this massive new unfunded liability? We know based on ALEC research that states are on the hook for between five and six trillion dollars, which is a rounding error here in Washington, but it's real money at the state level. So that's going to be a debt management question as to how do you start chipping away at this massive iceberg of debt that maybe was showing a bit on top of the surface, but now this market crash is going to reveal the extent of these liabilities. Yeah, and I think that that number is, it is huge for the states. $5 trillion of unfunded pension liabilities. It it totals over $15,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Uh, One thing that we've seen several states do, Jonathan mentioned Michigan, but beginning to move from uh, this defined benefit plan to defined contribution plans. Uh, Fortunately, we've seen a trend, several governors uh, pushing for that in their state of the state addresses just this year, including uh, Governor McMaster in South Carolina. And there are a handful of other states that we can point to uh, who have successfully begun that transition or even uh, attempted a hybrid plan to get started there. Uh, And in some cases, that has helped reduce the liabilities in those states. And the five to six trillion uh, dollar number that we've been talking about, that was before this market crash. So, right. So that was if historic bull market 10 years, you know, that we had built into it and it was still that bad. Now, if we, when we rerun the numbers for the Alex study in the coming year, I expect that number to be obviously much, much worse. Uh, This is a problem that's not going away anytime soon. I've often called it the existential financial threat facing states. And it's not just pensions, it's the healthcare liabilities, the OPEB liabilities that we write about every year and the bonded debt. So we took, took a look at the full debt picture that adds a couple of more trillion dollars. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done, and it's really encouraging to see elected officials like Governor McMaster in South Carolina call for fundamental reform, because this is not for the faint of heart. This is heavy lifting, and pensions are a wonky topic. Even for wonks like ourselves, pensions <laughs> are a wonky topic. And one other thing, just getting back to spending and priorities, uh, I, one, one other example that we love to point to at the state level, this is going back all the way to 2002. But I think it rings true today, and it's something that more states need to take seriously, and that's priority-based budgeting. I mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to just throw out, in 2002, Washington State, uh, under the leadership of uh, Democratic Governor Gary Locke, had a $2.4 billion shortfall in their budget. They were able to close that gap without raising taxes by prioritizing spending. And so what they did is they looked at uh, every single line item, and they asked questions like, what is the role of government? Um, how are our essential services uh, being fulfilled by government? Uh, what is essential, what's not? And they came up with a ranking, and ultimately that helped them close that budget gap. And so obviously that's a very brief overview of what they did, uh, but the ALEC Budget Reform Toolkit still provides a great resource to legislators who want to learn more about that process. Well, let's double click a little bit on the priority-based budgeting issue. You know, where does a legislator start? Certainly one can, uh, you know, line item everything and take a look and see what a state needs, but that's a big issue. Just yesterday, Virginia passed a $135 billion two-year budget. How do you start thinking through what line item matters most in $135 billion? That's a huge question. And uh, I think the first step is stop digging the hole deeper, right? Anytime that you're looking to get out of a hole. And so at least having the conversation, just like we would if we were sitting around our kitchen tables at home and doing kitchen table budgeting, when we talk to our, our better halves and we decide what's 
a need versus what's a want? What's our available income versus what do we want to spend? And having those very basic questions, as many legislators already do, this is a little bit more of a refined process that Washington State uh, put together in the recession before 2008. But I think what Lee mentioned is so important is it has to be bipartisan. This is not something that is a right-wing idea, a left-wing idea. This is good financial best practices. This is economics 101. And uh, this is something that every state, as they come back potentially to re-examine their budgets, are going to have to go through this process, whether they call it this, whether they go through all the steps of Washington. At the end of the day, we have to decide what's a need, what's a want, what's the available revenue coming in, and how do we spend it most effectively for taxpayers. And a huge component of that is transparency. I think as taxpayers, we all deserve to know where our dollars are being spent. One thing Washington State and others have done is to have a website where anybody can navigate uh, and see exactly how the budget's working, where the frivolous spending is, where the spending is that you know is directly uh, benefiting them. And so I think anytime we can increase transparency, whether it's through a website or through a referendum process, that's a huge positive uh, for taxpayers. That's a great point. And one of the things that uh, I've often said on the road as we travel the states is probably the best and most effective piece of ALEC model legislation out of the 900 that we have on the website actually came from the federal level under Tom Coburn and actually Senator Barack Obama, and that was the ALEC budget transparency model legislation that's now in law in all 50 states in some form or another, and it's so essential to this process. of It's really impossible to get to priority-based budgeting unless you start with, let's put all the cards on the table. Let's mm-hmm. know what we're spending. In so many cases, unfortunately, legislators and their staff are told to vote on a budget before the ink dries. We all know you have to vote on it and approve it before you know what's in it up here in Washington. That happens way too much at the state level, and this is a perfect, Alex, solution to get to the bottom of that problem. Well, all right, gentlemen. Anything else that you can think of right now that state legislators should be thinking about related to market volatility and financial solvency in the states? Well, I mean, the budget reform toolkit that we've referenced several times, we've only talked about a couple of the points. It's got 23 different suggestions to how to balance a budget without raising taxes. And I think in times like these, what taxpayers and the market wants is certainty. They want to know that we're not going to yank the rug out from under investments after they've been made. Uh, They want to know that taxes are not going to go up on investments or on real estate or on property taxes or sales or income taxes. And they want to know that government's doing the absolute best that it can to live within its means and not ask for more when everybody's down. Yeah, and I would just, in closing, add that when times are good, that's the time to prepare for moments like these. Those are the times when you can't lose sight uh, that something like a pandemic or a recession is possible. And so I think all legislators should keep that in mind uh, as they build their rainy day funds, as they increase transparency uh, in their, their budget process. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. Really appreciate your time today. And for more information about priority-based budgeting, pensions, and fiscal responsibility, download the State Budget Reform Toolkit and Keeping the Promise from the publication section at alec.org. I'm Bill Meyerling with Across the States. 